Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Chitheads podcast. My guest today is Vineet Chander. Vineet is the coordinator for Hindu life and Hindu chaplain at Princeton University and a religious life leader at the Lawrenceville School. He has also served as an adjunct professor, attorney, and communications consultant. His areas of specialty include bhakti theology, models of pastoral counseling, and the Hindu-American diaspora community. His writing has appeared in a number of publications, and he is co-author of Hindu Chaplaincy and co-editor of Hindu Approaches to Spiritual Care, Chaplaincy in Theory and Practice. A student of His Holiness Radhanath Swami for more than two decades, he is a sought-after speaker and teacher in his own right, particularly known for his ability to infuse ancient wisdom with humor, relevant examples, and avenues for application. He has spoken at a number of conferences and educational institutions, including the American Academy of Religion, the Global Dharma Conference, the Global Chaplains Conference, Yale University, Cornell University, and the Harvard Divinity School at Harvard University. In addition, he has offered wisdom teachings in a number of temples, ashrams, and yoga studios, including the philosophy portions of YTT courses at Gratitude Yoga, Prana Yoga Shala, and Onyx Yoga. He is a regular speaker at and past board member of the Bhakti Center, which is here in New York City. So hello, Vineet. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. So thank you for starting us off with that beautiful chant. Do you want to begin by maybe unpacking the meaning of that chant for the listeners? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, that particular shloka is from the second chapter of the Gita. Um, it's not something that I typically chant as part of my spiritual practice, but something I've been reflecting on lately. So I, I thought I would just offer that as a, a point of reflection or meditation. Um, this is Sri Krishna's instruction to Arjuna in the second chapter, uh, reminding him of the yogi's ability to maintain stability, even in and especially perhaps in the face of seemingly unlimited provocations and cravings. He says, just as the ever-filled ocean remains steady and undisturbed, although waters are constantly flowing into it from every side, in the same way, one who is undisturbed by the constant flow of cravings and desires experiences peace within, not one who strives to fulfill those cravings. Mm. What a beautiful shloka. Thank you for sharing that. We're going to talk about chaplaincy today and your role as the first full-time Hindu chaplain at an American college or university that's at, at Princeton. Can you Tell us a little bit about what led you to this work, what, you know, about your own kind of evolution and your spiritual practice led you to the decision to become a Hindu chaplain. Yeah, I think when we talk about the decision to become a chaplain, we're perhaps being um, a little too generous. Uh, I don't know how, how much of a decision it was as much <laughs> of uh, as much as it was maybe um, a calling. 
a calling that I was very stubborn in trying to ignore and refuse for a while. Mm. Um, I grew up in a uh, Hindu American family, although I sometimes only half jokingly refer to it as an analog to the the cultural Jew or the secular Jew, right? Um, I grew up in this very kind of cultural Hindu American family. You know, faith was was present in our lives, but I don't think it was by any means a centerpiece of our household. Um, unlike some other folks, um, I didn't grow up, for instance, with a particular mandir or a community that I was affiliated with. We didn't have like a family spiritual teacher or anything of the sort, but it was always sort of a presence. And it was always something that uh, I knew was a part of my identity, even if I I couldn't quite articulate how. You know, at the risk of sounding a little cliche, uh, when I hit my teenage years, I became um, a nightmare to my parents. And um, (laughs) as we all do, as we all do. But part of the way it manifested for me was I just became this moody, angsty teenager that among other things started to just question everything. Mm-hmm. And um, for me, that ended up opening the door kind of unexpectedly into the spiritual because my my questioning sort of blossomed into these larger existential questions. And as I said, we weren't a particularly like orthodox religious family, but uh, my parents, you know, trying their best would, would occasionally like take us to religious festivals at, at temples and, and, and things like that. Um, I grew up in New York City. And so, you know, we were fortunate that there, there were Hindu, you know, mandirs around and, and communities uh, to connect to. And my, some of my, my memories of this time is, you know, I would go to these gatherings and I would be really fixed on just asking a lot of questions to the mm-hmm. point where I think I was upsetting people and starting to like, <laughs> you know, annoy some of these religious leaders who were probably more used to, um, folks just sort of following along ritualistically. And here is this, you know, Indian American kid who is just asking all of these questions. The, the, sort of the, the, the less satisfied I was um, in terms of answers coming from those sources, the more I turned to just doing a lot of reading and, and study on my own. Um, I like to say the New York City Public Library became my house of worship. I love it. I love um, it. And, you know, to make a, a long story slightly shorter, I um, I ended up after a you know a, a brief but meaningful flirtation with atheism. I you know it, it's necessary. We all need to we all need to date uh, atheism. We all need to doubt, have some kind of formative doubt. Yeah. But for me, you know, the what what that kind of um, it admittedly immature but but earnest in its own way kind of journey led to was a, a real connection with spiritual traditions both outside of, of Hinduism, um, but also kind of in, in a way, it led to me appreciating the wealth of spiritual traditions within uh, the umbrella category of Hinduism. And for me, the traditions that really spoke to me most strongly and clearly were the traditions that were very much infused with the idea of, of love and devotion. So for me, the, the connection that that really um, started to, to to form was one of of bhakti. The reason I start there is I think it was around this time, right? Like so, high school and maybe now, you know, kind of getting into um, you know thinking about what I'd like to study in you know in college, um, where I started to feel the first sort of inklings of um, 
I would love to really deep, deep dive, you know, into the spiritual. And I think if I were a little bit more honest with myself back then, I would have ended up probably pursuing religion and spirituality in terms of my academic study and, and perhaps in terms of a profession. Um, but I, I think I hesitated to do that. There was a lot of pressure when I was growing up, particularly for, um, you know, uh, kids in the South Asian community and diaspora communities generally uh, to, to study sort of more quote unquote respectable sort of professional fields. Mm. If I'm being honest, I, I think I ended up sort of bowing to a little bit of that pressure and went the route of studying law instead. Mm-hmm. One thing I did do, though, that I'm, I mean, it would be an understatement to say I'm grateful for this. I, I just, it, it was the, the game changer for me, is I took some time between undergrad and law school uh, to spend time living uh, and studying in a traditional Hindu ashram setting. Um, I stayed in an ashram uh, here in the United States, as well as one in Mumbai, India. And I knew that it was, uh, for me, a a kind of uh, a temporary gap year type of program, right? I had no, um, I was under no illusions that that I would, you know, become a monk that just wasn't in the cards for me. Um, Nor was it really something that I that I sort of felt called to do. Uh, But I did really want to just take that time to just connect with the texts and the teachings and, and with that, that lifestyle. And it was an amazing experience um, and something that I'm so, so grateful for. And, and something that, that really made such a deep impression on my, on my heart and on my mind. So I arrived to law school now having had this amazing experience, right? This spiritually nourishing, this intellectually stimulating experience I show up to law school and now I've got a head and heart full of like Bhagavad Gita shlokas and, you know, mantras and, and, um, you know, Vedanta and and yoga philosophy. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this now? You know, am I supposed (laughs) to just switch gears and just, you know, put all that on hold and start to, you know, memorize statutes and, and, you know. Oh, that sounds terrible. As, as a person of faith and as by this point, a kind of a, a somewhat committed, you know, bhakti yogi, uh, devotee, I prayed on it. Part of my prayer was asking my beloved source, my Lord, um, please help me to see what I'm supposed to, what I'm meant to do with this, right? How are these pieces supposed to fit together? Um, how would you like me to be an instrument of, of your grace and your wisdom? And practically speaking, almost, I think maybe even the same day I I dared to utter that prayer, I was walking across campus and happened to bump into um, an activity fair that was set up by some undergraduates. And I happened to meet these these lovely Hindu-American students, you know, all undergrads, uh, who had a student group. And um, I connected with them and I asked them, what, what sort of activities do you guys do? And, and they told me a little bit about what they had done up to that point. But then they said, you know, what we're really hoping to do this year, if we could just find, you know, sort of the right teacher or the right facilitator, is we would really just love to, to do some study of like the Bhagavad Gita. Hmm. And it was one of these moments. It was just like, 
it just like landed in my lap as the answer to my prayer. Um, so I connected with this group and forged friendships that, that continue to this day. Um, I ended up becoming a kind of, um, you know, an older brother figure, so to speak, and, and kind of tried my best to, to hold this space and facilitate the study and, and engagement with, um, you know, with Hindu philosophy, with, with um, living out some of these teachings. And, and it was these students who, who asked if I would be open to serving as their chaplain. And now you have to understand, up to this point, the only time I had ever heard that term uh, was probably the old uh, the old TV show MASH, <laughs> where you had the army chaplain, right? Mm-hmm. And so to me, it was always like a figure like that, you know, a, a Christian minister or something who's like serving in, in a hospital or in the military or something of that effect. Um, but but nothing that that really kind of connected to the way I thought about you know, me and, and my faith. Uh, but what I came to, to understand was that this idea of chaplaincy um, had broadened out and was broadening out. And uh, where I went to school, this is at George Washington University in, in D.C., uh, the model of chaplaincy there, which is a model that is on many campuses, uh, was one of um, a body of volunteers um, who were from multiple faith communities and who worked with their faith communities and served and, and offered care to them. I agreed with a lot of encouragement from these students and, and, and from others. And I served as, as their student chaplain um, or their volunteer chaplain. And I absolutely loved it. It was probably the most fulfilling thing I, you know, I got to do during those, those law school years. And I promised myself that if ever the opportunity arose, uh, I would love to return to, to chaplaincy. I was going to actually ask you if you if you finished law school, but you're about to go into that. So go ahead. Yeah. Um, and I'm sorry if this is like a, a very long winded story. No, I love it. It's beautiful. So I graduated law school, um, took and somehow mysteriously enough passed the bar and uh, got what I thought was my dream job, which was uh, being a prosecutor at the DA's office in New York City. Mm. You know, on paper, everything was lining up, right? Everything I could have asked for uh, was just falling into place. What I discovered, kind of much to my surprise and and perhaps even horror, only a few months into the job was, although everything made sense on paper, nothing seemed to make sense in terms of what I was feeling. I wasn't feeling fulfilled. I wasn't feeling connected. I wasn't feeling like I was in in integrity with what I was meant to to do and be. Um, and it, it was a really odd feeling because I think sometimes when we set out to do something and then we discover we're not very good at it, it can be really jarring and painful. But I think it's a, it's another level of of discomfort when we set out to do something, we're good at it, you know, to some degree. Um, we receive external praise and accolades and affirmation, and yet we're still left feeling internally hollow and empty and unfulfilled. And this is what was starting to happen to me. And and I realized, particularly, you know, after confiding in my wife and, and friends and mentors, um, I, I came to realize that either I needed to make a change or I needed to find a way to make this work in the long run. Um, but 
the current situation was just not tenable. It, it just, it wasn't sustainable. I kind of realized that if there was ever a time to make a wild, illogical, irrational, you know, leap of faith, this was probably it. Um, I was young enough. We didn't have kids at that point. Um, I was thankfully free of debt, right? And um, and decided to take the leap. So I, I resigned my position and I decided to pursue what I really felt drawn to and what, if I was more honest with myself from the beginning, I probably would have gravitated towards anyway, uh, which is spirituality and um, serving my community and particularly working with young and emerging adults in my community. So I returned to chaplaincy. I served as a volunteer Hindu chaplain at Rutgers University uh, in New Jersey. And um, after doing that for a little while and, and, and trying to serve my community in other ways and doing some freelance projects and some consulting, uh, I was forwarded a job posting um, that you know a friend thought I might be a good fit from. And uh, the, the posting was from Princeton University. Uh, Princeton was just starting to take the steps to pilot what would then become the first full-time Hindu life program. Uh, I applied for the position. I uh, was um, blessed to be given the opportunity to um, run the program in its pilot year as its pilot coordinator, and then was uh, invited to take on the position in a, a permanent full-time capacity. Um, and it's been a little over a decade now. Wow, it's been a decade. Um, that's incredible. What a beautiful story. So what is chaplaincy and how does it differ from other forms of, of Hindu spiritual leadership? So I don't think it's incorrect to, to connect chaplaincy to Christianity, right? I think mm. it's, if, if we're going to understand a concept like chaplaincy or um, a synonym for chaplaincy that, that I often use is, is pastoral care, Right. Um, if we're to understand concepts like chaplaincy or pastoral care, I think we do need to reckon with uh, the histories and the, and the historical contexts that they emerge from. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and these are Christian contexts. So the idea of chaplaincy, uh, you know, arises from this kind of vision of a religious and spiritual leadership that that looks at the spiritual leader as one who is an, a, a caregiver. Um an offer of care, of solace, um, of counsel. There's a, a somewhat antiquated term, but I think it's it's a beautiful one um, that uh, that that says um, that the term is cure of souls. And so this is the this is what what the chaplain is tasked with the cure of souls. Now, cure in this sense is is meant to connect to its original meaning, which is a synonym for care. So it's really caring for souls. Um, but I think it's um, it's also meaningful that we could look at it in terms of cure, in, term, in terms of restoring one to a position of health. So mm. just as we can do that on the physiological level, um, just as we can do that, and there's increasing appreciation for doing that on the level of mental and emotional wellness, there is a dimension of spiritual wellness. And so chaplaincy, in one sense, was designed to address caregiving and a restoration to health on that level of the spiritual dimension. Understanding, of course, that the spiritual dimension is intertwined with and intersects with 
the mental, the emotional, the behavioral, the physiological. If we are to care for people in the fullness of their personhood, we cannot neglect the spiritual dimension. Mm. So this is the kind of the foundation that, that of course, chaplaincy arises uh, from. And it's, it's also, as I said, known as pastoral care, kind of drawing from this image, as, as best I understand it, of um, Christ as, as the shepherd and uh, of the religious leader as one who um, serves as, as uh, a pastor, serves in that spirit of, of the shepherd calling out to and bringing in back into the fold, you know, the, the member of the flock, so to speak, that is in, in need of that attention or that care. Um, so that that's that's beautiful imagery. It's imagery that I've encountered in my own um, spiritual exploration, and it's 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 an aspect of Christianity that I certainly appreciate as an outsider. Um, but it's not necessarily the language that I would use in terms of my own Hindu faith. So this is where I think it's important that we recognize the roots of chaplaincy and pastoral care, but we also recognize that the field has grown and expanded. And so from those beginnings, we understand pastoral care now or spiritual care even to, to be um, holding space to accompany others in their suffering. Um, it's, it's a form of religious leadership or spiritual leadership, I think, that asks us to not turn away from the suffering that we see in others, but to lean into it and to accompany others in their own journey of, uh, again, to, to go back to this idea of a restoration to health. Um, one of the ways that pastoral care has really been beautifully expanded is um, the influence of uh, Buddhist chaplains and caregivers um, who have introduced in a more explicit way or at least we can say um, who've emphasized, because perhaps it was always there, but who've emphasized in a more explicit way the uh, contemplative dimensions of pastoral care. Um, this, this, the idea of of a spiritual caregiver uh, bringing radical, compassionate presence. Um, just that presence, right? We say just as it, as if it's like you know a minor thing. Um, but as simple as it is, it's so profound, the, the act of spiritual presence. It's not entirely the, 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 the language of Hindu theology. I think it resonates really, really well with Hindu theology. Um, this idea of compassionate, contemplative presence, of spiritual accompaniment, of, of addressing the spiritual dimension um, to... to address to respond to the suffering that we see in others um, as well as the suffering that we see in ourselves yeah wow that's that's beautiful that's such a beautiful description and i really appreciate the point you make about health and wellness being inclusive of you know spiritual health um because it seems like you know more and more the sort of secular wellness world is is kind of um, contracting itself around notions of wellness that are sort of defined by, you know, green juice and um, physical asana that's devoid of the spiritual teachings. And 
and things like this and a kind of almost fear or a neglect of the spiritual conversation. So, you know, on that topic of, of spiritual health, um, as, you know, in your experience over the last 10 years as a chaplain, could you de describe or maybe share a few of what you see, what you've seen to be kind of the most common obstacles to those who you advise in terms of um, cultivating this spiritual health? Like what are, what are people, you know, at the college university level um, uh, struggling with uh, from a spiritual perspective? What I've experienced, uh, um, particularly in an environment like Princeton, but I, I think it would hold, you know, in terms of other environments as well, is um, a, a kind of a, um, an unhealthy emphasis on validation and affirmation coming from from the external we're, we're sort of uh collectively and, and perhaps individually as well um you know almost like addicted to success and achievement almost the way you know it, it's like a drug we're like addicted to it like a drug right the, the notion that if i just have enough of xyz i will be fulfilled i will be happy i will have arrived Right. Um, that that I will be enough when dot dot dot. Right. Yeah. Right? Um, and and now it's easy to talk about that in the sense of um, critiquing sort of gross materialism. And I feel like thoughtful people increasingly they're able to talk about that and and to call that out. Right. Um, so, you know, the the idea that you know I will be um, happy when I'm earning you know, six figures or more or whatever, right? I think a lot of people are are able to sort of call that out. But I feel like where we're struggling is on the more subtle level, right? Because we bring that same kind of mentality, that same kind of externalizing of our contentment, of our fulfillment, of um, what it means to be a, a healthy whole person. Um, we project that in in a host of subtle ways also, Right. So thinking thinking about, for instance, the way we approach relationships, I see this a lot with with students. The approach to relationship is so often a kind of a, a subtle um, manifestation of this same tendency to externalize, this same tendency to look at things in terms of acquisition and attainment and achievement. Mm -hmm. um, in one sense, what we're doing is we're not really relating to one another as people anymore. We're actually again, very subtly, so subtly that we would never dream, most of us would never dream we're even doing this, but we end up so often objectifying the other as a means to an end, right? Um, so th this person, this relationship has value in an, you know, in, in as much as it is somehow ticking off um, a box on my list, or it's making me feel like I am somehow, you know, I've arrived in some way, Right. Um, I see this with with students who externally seem to be some of the most popular students on campus, but who, for instance, will you know sit in my office or now um, in this you know in the context of the pandemic will you know join me virtually on a Zoom call and will openly cry and express how absolutely and utterly alone they feel. Mm. Um, you know, one um, one one thinker refers to this as 
the epidemic, and this is pre-COVID, but yeah. we can only imagine how much worse this is in the, in yeah. the context of COVID. The epidemic, he calls it, of loneliness, right? Mm -hmm. This is the real epidemic that's like raging across our country and increasingly across the kind of, you know, globalized, westernized world, um, right? In one sense, you can say, and, and, and I know it's, it's um, tempting to just sort of bash on uh, progress and, and, and technology and, and you know, um, westernization and things like that. But I do think there's truth to that, that, that this notion that we are hyper-connected in some ways, and along with it, we are utterly and profoundly disconnected from one another, but also deeply from ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so this epidemic of loneliness and disconnection is something that I think comes up again and again. And to me, it's, it's very much related to this this sort of idea of externalizing our happiness, externalizing our fulfillment, right? Looking for it out there when, if I could dare to turn within, if I could, um, and I say dare intentionally because it's, it's I think, terrifying as all hell mm. for most of yeah. us. Um, but if, but if, if I can face the terror of quieting everything else down and looking inside um, and I can deal with, the abject horror of the possibility that I'm I'm going to have to confront what's what what's sitting in there in my heart, but if I can do that, um, I may actually find that that fulfillment. Um, the, the the shloka that I chanted earlier from the Gita I think speaks to this really well, right? The, this idea of the ocean remaining undisturbed, um, remaining this beautiful steady, stable, expansive force. How does it do that? Despite the fact of these rivers, these bodies of water flowing into it, this, this constant dynamic influx of, of stimuli. How does the ocean remain the ocean? Um, and I think this, this, this verse, the shloka, um, gives us a hint of this by pointing out the depth of the ocean. If we can learn to cultivate depth, um, if we can have that deep, rich inner life, which takes work, which takes courage to look within, then despite, you know, the, the circumstances, right? It's not that those circumstances cease to exist. It's not like life becomes, you know, um, whatever the, the, the cliche is, a bed of roses. Far from it. But now we have the resource well, two things. One is we have resources to actually address those um, those those provoking situations. Um, we we have a kind of a, a toolkit, a spiritual toolkit. Um, but on a deeper level, we have a place of stability. We have a rich inner life, a rich source of of nourishment and fulfillment and contentment. We don't need to look for it out there. Um, we don't need to set ourselves up for for disappointment and failure by setting our expectations in the outer world, we can reconnect to it constantly within ourselves. Mm. So you've kind of unpacked this epidemic of loneliness so beautifully, and you're already kind of talking about the answer to this question, but I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about, um, for those that are listening and they're like, yes, I am experiencing that myself. You know, you've talked about the spiritual toolbox 
Um, what are the kind of components from, you know, uh, this perspective of Hindu chaplaincy, the components of that spiritual toolbox um, that, you know, uh, the listeners might perhaps engage as a way to counteract this experience of loneliness? So one of the things that I've encountered in, in my work as a Hindu chaplain is uh, the need to borrow from frameworks that, that already exist, but also to look within um, my own tradition and the, to the wisdom of um, teachers and texts from within the Hindu world um, to see what frameworks are offered there. And one of the frameworks that I found that it has deeply impacted my work and and um, my own approach to offering care within my community is this framework that's found within Vedanta and yoga philosophy. It's a framework that holds essentially that we are at core perfected spiritual beings. We are sparks of... of um, a divine source that is pure being, that is pure awareness, that is ultimately pure bliss or pure joy. So that as a starting point, I think is so powerful, right? To remind ourselves, not, not in a, a kind of, um, you know, in a superficial way, um, but, but in a very deep sense to remind ourselves that at core, I am fullness. At core, I am um, awareness. At core, I am bliss. I, I don't even say I have bliss or I have happiness, but I am that bliss. I am that happiness at core. And yet we also contend with, um, and I think this is the beauty of the framework, we contend with being embodied beings. Yeah. So we're this, this, this core self that is this kind of pure being, pure awareness, pure joy or bliss. And at the same time, we are enmeshed in the experience of embodiment, which means we have to um, identify with and engage with the body-mind complex that, that we find ourselves in. The beauty of the framework, I think, is in how we can use our embodiment to connect with, or, or shall we say, reconnect with that spiritual core. So to get to, to the to the sort of practicality of this, right? How do we do that? Um, well, I think it starts with, again, this affirmation of, of who I am at core. And then it, it takes the form of what in my tradition is called sadhana, is called practice. Yeah. Um, engaging in a practice that helps us to constantly and consistently reconnect with that spiritual core, um, even as we are embodied beings. So how do we do that? Um, I, I've, I've um, really come to appreciate a teaching that's given, given in a couple of places. Of course, it's given in the Bhagavad Gita. Um, it's given in some of the Upanishads and the Vedanta Sutra. One place that it interestingly comes up is in the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. It shows up there in the second chapter of that book where this idea of sadhana is broken down into um, three constituent pieces. And I found this to be such a powerful, uh, you know, to use that, that term again, such a powerful toolkit 
um, to uh, to offer to folks as they're engaging in this in this work of reconnecting with our with that inner life. So the three pieces of the toolkit. The first is called tapa or tapasya. And um, listeners who are perhaps familiar with yoga practice and tradition may recognize this word. Um, it's usually translated as austerity. Um, mm -hmm. I like to translate it as discipline, mm. um, even self-discipline, because what I understand tapa to offer us is uh, as, as, a, as a tool in our toolkit is it's an opportunity to, with intention, to cultivate um, and to start to craft for ourselves a regimen of, of discipline. In other words, how do I want to show up in the world? How do I want to engage with the world around me? How do I want to engage with, with other folks? Um, what do I want my relationships to look like? What do I want my core values to be? Um, how do I want those core values to be communicated, right? It's one thing to come up with um, a, a beautiful and impressive list of, of virtues. It's another thing to live them out. So how do I want to live my life in such a way that there's integrity between what I, what I state or what I, you know, hold and, and, and aspire towards as my values, as my core values and how, as I sometimes say, you know, how I show up at 3.45 in the afternoon when I'm on online at Target and I'm pissy and I've been having a rough day and, you know, the, the, the cashier doesn't seem to know what he's doing, right? Um, <laughs> that was a, 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 an oddly specific example. So maybe that's, that's something <laughs> It was a recent uh, event for you, I imagine. Right, but, but, but I, what I love about that is it takes a, a concept like tapasya and it says all right, let's just like cut the shit, take it from this place of lofty ideals. And like, how do I show up in those tiny moments where like no one is going to see me, right? These are not the moments where I can posture in front of my community or I can hold forth as some amazing yogi. How do I show up, you know, when I'm in my car and I'm stuck in traffic? How do I show up when I'm online at Target? How do I show up when my kid is driving me up the wall and, you know, and and I'm tempted to just like, you know, tell them off or to shoot them down or whatever. There's a, there's a million applications of this, right? How do I show up in those moments? And to me, that is where the, the, the answer to that question is going to be a reflection of what I'm doing with tapas in my life, what I'm doing with intentionally crafting um this this idea of of um discipline of will of um of of how i act and and live and where that integrity is or isn't showing up so that's that first piece this idea of of, of tapas and and i think it's linked to to austerity or or why tapas is often translated as as austerity is um the good and bad news is it's like not easy it it's not pleasant you know, there, there's uh, these, this, this teaching around tapas that says um, tapas is choosing the good over the pleasurable, or in Sanskrit, choosing um, shreya over preya, right? Having the long view, um, which sometimes means, or which often means, I think, um, accepting some short-term discomfort or sacrifice 
some renunciation of immediate gratification for this, you know, larger project of building my will of, of, of crafting this sort of discipline um, that helps me to show up as my best self in the world. Right. So that's, that's the Basya. Now, the more we do that, um, hopefully the sort of clearer our kind of mental and emotional space becomes, right? The more we're living with integrity, the more we're showing up with integrity, the more we're making those lifestyle and, you know, those, those behavioral choices, which help us to, to, to be our best selves. Um, the more we do all that, the more we give ourselves the precious gift of, um, of, of space and energy to cultivate contemplation. And so the second tool in, in our toolkit is what's called Swadhyaya. And Swadhyaya means, it, it, it literally means self-study, and it could be understood as um, sort of contemplative practices more generally, right? So this is where meditation comes in. Uh, I, I often find um, there's there's a lot of, of kind of, um, I would say, misunderstandings or assumptions that people have about meditation. And among them is this idea that meditation is all about sort of relaxing and feeling Zen. <laughs> and if I'm not, if I'm yeah. not like totally relaxed and just like, you know, again, to use this, this sort of terrible term, um, if I'm not like feeling super Zen, then I must not be doing meditation. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, sometimes we might have experiences of just feeling like very calm and those are blessings. But often meditation as a practice is, again, it's hard work. Right? Yeah. Building, to me, the reason it's hard work is I think any practice is, is hard work. It's building that muscle memory. Right? When my daughter practices violin, it's a drag. It's a drag to do scales over and over again. It's a drag to, to work on the same piece and, trying, and, and, and try to, you know, um, to, to go over it again and again and to hear it and, and try to adjust and to... To, 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 to build up that skill. Um, but we, we engage in practice, not to feel great in practice. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, but we engage in practice to sort of build that muscle memory so that, um, that, that ability to turn within, to quiet the external and to even quiet the mental chatter, um, that becomes like second nature to us. That starts to become like our, our new default position. And so Swadhyaya is very much um, a practice. So Swadhyaya becomes this practice that allows us to build the muscle memory of quieting the external world, but perhaps more importantly, of being able to quiet even the internal mental chatter that so often um, stands in our way that so often um, prevents us from being able to connect to that that deeper self, that that true self within. Um, if we can learn to quiet the mental chatter, then we get to tune into that that voice of inner guidance coming from the true self. But it takes practice, and so that's what Swadhyaya is designed to do: um, to give us the opportunities to intentionally to consistently, to repetitively, um, to sincerely turn to practice and to build up that, that 
inner resilience to build up that ability to tune out the external and to tune into the internal. The final piece um, of sadhana that's offered in this in this um, toolkit given to us in the Yoga Sutras and, and elsewhere is a really powerful practice uh, called Ishwara Pranidhana. Ishwara is a term that's found in yoga philosophy and in Hindu metaphysics for the divine. It's a somewhat open-ended term, and the understanding is Ishwara is personal to all of us. Ishwara is divinity as he, she, they, it shows up for us and reveals itself for us, um, first and foremost, within the core of our hearts. Mm. Pranidhana refers to the act of, sometimes it's translated as submission or surrender, but I like uh, an alternate translation that says pranidhana is the act of making the object of our devotion the centerpiece. So Ishwara pranidhana is this act of centering or recentering on divinity. Um, and I know that that can be challenging for some folks, particularly if theism is not, you know, a huge part of their spiritual practice or their their metaphysical or spiritual paradigm. But I like that Ishwara Pranidhana, whether we're theists or not, I happen to be a theist, I happen to be someone who identifies with a devotional, relational, personal tradition. So for me, Ishwara Pranidhana is a very personal thing. It's about having a relationship with God, um, with the divine, in a very intimate, personal way. But even if someone doesn't have that as a part of their spiritual walk. Um, I love that Ishwara Pranidhana challenges us to, to think about and to reach out to even that which is beyond us. Um, it's wonderful to affirm ourselves and, and, and ultimately to affirm that, that deepest self um, that at least Vedanta and yoga hold is is the core essence of who we are. Um, it's wonderful to affirm one another and to to seek um, to find grace and beauty in other living beings, and that's an important part of the tradition. But I love that Ishwara Pranidhana reminds us that beyond all of that, there is the transcendence, whether we think of that transcendence in terms of a deity, we think of that transcendence as the wholeness and fullness of the universe, right? Like as, as some teachers point out, um, the kind of the whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. um, or whether we think of that transcendence as um, simply the reality of a mystery that is and, and forever shall be beyond us. Um, th th that transcendence is that which we will never be able to fully grasp, that which, which we will never be able to encapsulate and quantify and grasp within the bounds of our mental and intellectual and even emotional exercises, that there will always be something that is the wonderful mystery that is beyond us. 
even if it's just a recognition of that mystery, and I don't say just in a dismissive sense, but I say it in the sense of recognizing the sort of beautiful simplicity of that idea. Whatever it is, the idea that our, our toolkit is not complete until we recognize something beyond us, I think is such a powerful and, and beautiful piece to the, to, to, um, you know, to, to sadhana, to practice. And so, um, Ishwar Pranidhana is a um, is an invitation to, with intention and with purpose, to make that centering of that which is beyond us to make that um, a part of of our spiritual practice and of um, how we live our lives. Mm. Um, that's going to look different for, for people. And so the traditional sort of approach to Ishwara Pranidhana is things like devotional practices, uh, in my tradition, um, worship as it, as it's, um, it's known as puja, the sort of ritualized act of, of making offerings, um, as a reminder of, of our own dependence of our own kind of humbling ourselves before the divine. So Ishwara Pranidhana can certainly take those forms. But I think also as we think in a more sort of expansive or, or universal sense, Ishwara Pranidhana can also show up as things like a, a practice of devotional journaling, nature walks, of meditation on uh, the the transcendent mystery, however that, that shows up for us. So, you know, for some folks, it, it could be um, something as, you know, as simple as... Um, making it a point to sit before the, the majestic beauty of a sunrise or a sunset or a sky full of stars and to own and embrace our own smallness, uh, to, to allow ourselves to be humbled, not in a way that humiliates us, not in a way that puts us down, but in a way that embraces and uplifts us in a recognition of our smallness and yet our inexplicable and um, indescribable role in the largeness of, of this infinite expansive universe, right? That I think is, is Ishwara Pranidhana. Yeah. Well, thank you for walking us through. Um, I wanted to talk about that. A lot of the content um, for the listeners uh, that um, Vinita is, is discussing has is, is come from an article I just read, which is from a, a Hindu chaplaincy book um, that you co-edited. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Um, uh, on kind of uh, unpacking the uh, Kriya Yoga from the Yoga Sutras in this beautiful way that he's just done. Um, and, you know, one things I one of the things I really appreciated, particularly about that article, Vinita, was how you don't shy away from um, applying these teachings to a contemporary context. I know there's, you know, especially in the contemporary contemporary time, there's a lot of kind of, sometimes there's a sensitivity around, you know, um, applying things, taking them out of context in a certain way, which you even remark on at the end of the, uh, uh, of the article um, that you're quite self-aware about that. But I really appreciate this um, this gesture of, as you say, 
applying old wisdom to new canvases, which is this beautiful phrase you use in the article. Um, and, and, it's, and, you know, the concept of Ishvari Pranidhana, I love the way you unpack that because I think it's so, it's so humble in a way, and it really honors the kind of diversity of, of experiences of the divine, which, as you've just described, actually also embraces, um, which I think is an important thing for people to hear, the atheistic perspective. I mean, you can, you know, you don't even have to have a conception of the divine um, in a kind of more theological way to um, experience Ishvara. If I understand you right, it seems like you're suggesting that Ishvara is even inclusive of whatever experience of the supreme might be experienced by anyone, no matter if they're theological or non-theological or non-theistic. I, I think it is. And, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of interesting um, exploration and even debate around this idea because um, Patanjali is quite, um, is quite mysterious in terms of um, who or what Ishwara is. I mean, he, he, there's a little bit of an explication um, but even that is 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 I think uh, quite open ended. You know, there's some there's some speculation and, and some attempt to sort of historically trace um, if there you know if there was a singular personality uh, teacher named Patanjali, what his own theological affiliation might be. Um, but I also think there's something really cool and really um, refreshing about the fact that he seems to kind of intentionally and maybe even cheekily. Um, leave it open-ended. It's almost, I think, I read this to be like Patanjali saying, I'm not going to tell you who Ishwara is because I, I don't want to, A, I don't want to limit it for you. I don't want to say, you know, I don't want someone to, to 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 read this or hear these teachings and think, oh, well, this is just for devotees of, you know, Vishnu or, or for Shavites or for Advaitins or whoever. No, Ishwara is, is accessible to anyone and everyone. But B, also, uh, and, and this is my own interpretation, but but I but I like it and I think it's fun. <laughs> I kind of imagine Patanjali saying, like, I'm not gonna tell you who Ishwara is. Like, that's part of the fun. You go out there and you figure out who Ishwara is for yourself. Like, why should I tell you? You know, like don't be mm -hmm. so lazy, dude. Just go out and you know, <laughs> live the life and, and practice Kriya Yoga. And Ishwara is going to reveal himself or herself. Maybe we can say. Ishwari, right? Because um, I don't mm -hmm. think even even though Ishwara is linguistically in the in the masculine, um, you know, I, I don't see this as a as a as a gendered directive. I think um, you know there are beautiful feminine goddess sort of interpretations of um, of of Ishwara Pranidhana as well. So I see Patanjali saying like, you know, Ishwara Ishwari reveal themselves to you it's not about me telling you who they are it's not even about you kind of finding the text or finding you know the written description or you know defining it it's it's about when when we are open to it ishwara ishwari um divinity mystery transcendence he, she, they, it reveals to us, right? It's and I love that language, that 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 uh, revelatory language, because again, it's humbling um, that it's not about my efforts, right? I will never do enough. And this, you know, I want to I want to harken back to something I was saying a little bit earlier about this sort of what I find is is so problematically at the root of of our own disconnection from ourselves or disconnection from 
from the world around us and from from others is is this sort of unhealthy emphasis on our efforts, on our endeavor, on our achievement, right? And I, I talked about this as being an addiction of sorts, right? Yeah. Um, and, and again, I, I feel like this this emphasis on on revelation is like this radical this radical response to that or this radical antipode to that that says if we're still talking in terms of how we can figure this out how we can achieve this how we can attain this how we can you know be smart enough be well read enough be yogis enough right be like mm-hmm. right because we we project all this stuff even onto our spiritual practice you know when i am xyz enough then I will have figured it all out. I will have, you know, I will be able to define once and for all who or what Ishvara is. Um, and I see this this approach of revelation as going, nope, like as long as you're thinking in those terms, you're, you're, you're missing the forest for the trees. As long as you're thinking in those terms, you're, you know, we're not even, we're, we're not even actually doing Ishvara Pranidhana. But when I let go of all those presuppositions, when I let go of all those expectations, when I let go of myself in the center as the arbiter of of definition and meaning, as you know, the definer, as the grasper, to use this kind of, I know it's a strange term in English, but you see this in in sort of yoga philosophy all this time, this idea of graha of grasping. Um, when I when I can learn to let go of that need to constantly grasp which is maybe kind of the need to constantly be in control when i can learn to let go of that stuff i start to take myself out of the center i start to decenter and then ishura can can be in the center then then the mystery can be revealed to me not because i am ever xyz enough but when i am when when i've put myself in the best possible position i can be in um to allow the mystery to to reveal and to unravel right it's 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 maybe a subtle turn but i think it's 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 like 180 degrees yeah wow well i think that was definitely the most resonant unpacking of ishvara um that we've had on the podcast at least for me so thank you so much and i think it's a beautiful um note to end on of course i I, I had plans to talk to you about many things, and perhaps we'll have to have another episode because um, I know we're coming up on um, the close of our time together. You have to move on to a um, a led uh, meditation and practice and teaching. Yeah, um, just, just see how devious I am that I've had <laughs> to squander all of our time and ensure no. a, a, you know, a second podcast out of the deal. Absolutely. No, everything you've said has been so beautiful. It's it's so wonderful to hear you speak and to um, explore all these topics in such depth and detail. It's really it's really quite, quite wonderful. Um, so, Vineet, as we close, I'd love to give you an opportunity just to share a little bit about how people can learn more about you. Are you doing any online kind of workshops you know i mentioned this teaching is that something that's open to the public anything you'd like to share about how folks can find out more about you yeah well thank you for that opportunity and and let me just say thank you so much for for this conversation um it's it's just been such a a gift um and and uh, a pleasure and an honor so thank you um in terms of keeping in touch it's something that uh i i would love to keep in touch and and a lot of the programming 
that uh, I do have the um, the honor to to help coordinate through Princeton is open to the, the larger public, and especially in these um, days of remote programming, is more and more now open to a very wide public um, beyond even geographic bounds. So happy to have folks tune into our some of our public programming. Um, on the other hand, I also, you know, I, um, I, I'm still trying to sort of figure out what, you know, what my relationship with this new world of, um, <laughs> you know, of, of almost unlimited content looks like. And yeah. just to be very honest, part of my own kind of struggle with that, if I can use that word, is um, I, I think I have my own sort of inclinations towards uh, turning everything into a kind of a commodity and a product and an achievement and accomplishment. So sure. Well, I'm not quite sure what that's going to look like as far as, you know, as we continue. Um, but, but I'm happy to put forth some of these online offerings. And if they're helpful to people, I, I, I do consider that, you know, just a, um, a gift to be able to offer that. Um, I think the best way of folks to, to be able to keep in touch with me is, um, you could go ahead and, and, and visit the website for the Hindu Life program at Princeton, um, which again I do have the uh, the pleasure of coordinating. Uh, that website is is hindu.princeton.edu, and when you go on that website, um, you could uh, you know you could sign up for our, our newsletter, find out about you know uh, upcoming events, um, and find out how you can connect to things like our weekly meditations or uh, teachings and, um, you know, how to uh, just sort of be in touch, even on a one-on-one -on -one basis, which I'm, I'm happy to do as time and, and uh, my energy. Mm. All right. Well, thank you for sharing all that. And for the listeners, um, do check out that website. And I have been speaking with Vineet Chunder, uh, who is the coordinator of Hindu Life and Hindu Chaplain at Princeton University. Vineet, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much, Jacob. It's been my honor and pleasure.